Ooh, that was rough. Oh, I pour I pour rum into my my seltzer water. It wasn't mixed up, so I, the first sip I took was just straight rum. Oh, all right. <laughs> Pause oh. a second so I can edit that out. Yeah. Let's- Oh, I didn't realize we were recording. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. All right. Uh, welcome to the program. Dying. Uh, sorry. Welcome to the program. My name is Robert Berger, joined by our hosts, Lee Griffin and Scott Boris, to cover uh, AIM 3-2-2, which is Class A Airspace. This will be a continuing program uh, going through all the letters of the alphabet with airspace. Uh, how are you guys doing today? Oh, I'm, I'm doing good. Uh Class A airspace, huh? Yeah, I'm pretty sure yes. that. Uh, what does that mean? Class A, the one up very. Class A means avoid, right? A is for avoid. You just you don't want to go there. Is that is that what that I, means? I I enjoy spending time there in the in first class. <laughs> yeah, right. The flight drinks. attendants serving you drinks. Flight attendants serving me drinks yeah, is my preferred wanna, method. You don't want to actually class. go there on your own, right, Lee? It's it's just too complicated, isn't it? I mean, it makes a lot of, as we've talked about, it makes a lot of things easier. You don't have to pay attention to a lot of rules. Just file IFR and go. Lee doesn't know even how to do the section anymore because he hasn't had to do anything. The air air traffic controller has been telling him what to do for how many years now? That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're exempt from so many things you have to think about. You know, I haven't had to teach anybody, haven't had to think about anything. You just file it and go, and a lot of the rules don't apply anymore. But uh, today, I guess... So well, it's not that. No. Complicated. See, I always. Just it makes a lot of remember, things easier. I remember class A as avoid. A for avoid. Just don't go there. You know? Well, yeah. I mean, that's a good. Yeah, that's a good, good way to thumb. remember it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, unless, you're, unless you're on an airliner with somebody else flying, obviously. Right. Right. But you can't log that, though. No, that's. Contrary yeah. to popular belief, you can't yeah. log that. So. Oh man, that means you I got log that. You can log that on your credit card, though. That means we're gonna have to go back and revise my hours, then, guys. Yeah, probably so. All right. So this today, it uh, it may not seem that pertinent to a lot of you know new pilots or uh, student pilots, but um, with all of these new high performance you know uh, aircraft, uh, the light jets uh, coming out. It's a lot more attainable. It's a lot more possible that you may be spending time in this airspace. I know when I was going through uh, entry level flight training, probably same with you guys. It it was not like class A airspace. I'm yeah, I'm never going to go there, or I I will rarely go there. And now you have Cirruses, Columbias that can go twenty five thousand feet, Malibu's, single engine, private what? pilot Cir- rating. You can go, go there. I didn't uh, know turbo Cirruses, you can go up in the twenties. I don't think I've ever put on flown oxygen, any, obviously it's unpressurized, but yeah, I don't think I've ever flown anything capable of going into class A. I don't know if I have. I'd have to think about it. Uh, you probably have, Fab. Maybe. All right, we'll just we'll jump we'll jump right into this. Class A airspace this is AIM three two two, part A definition. Just generally that airspace from eighteen thousand feet MSL, which is mean sea level, up to and including FL. 600, which is flight level 600, including the airspace overlying the waters within 12 nautical miles off the coast of the 48 contiguous states and Alaska. 
and designated international airspace beyond 12 nautical miles off the coast of the 48 contiguous states and Alaska within areas of domestic radio navigational single signal or ATC, air traffic control, radar coverage and within which domestic procedures are applied. Uh, so basically 18,000 feet um, mean sea level above the sea. Uh, 60,000 feet. Yeah, up to and including flight level 600, which is a fancy way to term. We'll get into a little bit probably uh, for 60,000 feet. Yeah. Uh, what's above 60,000? Above 60,000, it goes back to class E, correctly? Correct. Yep. So that's that's where the space shuttle is. Yes. Yeah. They, yeah. they go up, they go up to class E again. They don't fly those anymore, do they? What's that? I was going to say, I said SR-71s, but I said they don't fly those anymore. Yeah, they're flying something up there, I'll bet. Oh, yeah, they got stuff up there. There's plenty of stuff oh, that yeah. can go up there. Yeah, I saw something the other night that, but yeah, anyways. Let's not make this coast to coast midnight AM program here. Like, yeah, I got time. <laughs> uh, part B. You see some UFOs up there? <laughs> it, no, it wasn't a UFO, but it was, I mean, it was. Uh, oh, military. It was a military. Yeah, I, I don't think it was an alien. I think it was military. I think it was military. I'm sure there's cool stuff up there. Oh, yeah. The stuff um, that we know about. Think of the stuff we don't know about. Right. Anyways, Class A airspace. Yeah. So, and then this goes obviously over the 48 and Alaska with some nuances, but for the most part, it goes 12 nautical miles uh, offshore. Uh, it continues out and then it goes into something probably international that I did not research for this episode outside of right. that. Yeah. Alaska oh, um, and Hawaii always get special rules. Yeah. They're so special. particular and specific. Yeah, we'll get into some of those, uh, at least with Alaska. Yeah. Uh, in this B, part B, uh, the operating rules and pilot equipment requirements, unless authorized, all persons must operate their aircraft under IFR. It says C-14 CFR section 71.33 and 91.167 through 91.193 in parentheses. Uh, this is basically, you have to be under IFR. There's no VFR in Class A airspace. Um, 71.33 we'll get into, but that 91 section, the 167 through 193, that's basically the 16 IFR rules in the section, which when I added up, and that's most of the main rules for your instrument rating, and it seems like I'm not complaining about there not being enough rules. Um, no, but yeah, it seemed like, seemed like 16 was kind of when you think about it like that, it makes the instrument rating not seem as intense as, as it is. Yeah. When there's basically only 16 rules in Part 91 anyway that, that cover it. Yeah. In addition, yeah, to everything you learned as a private, you're only adding a, a little bit, really. Yeah. So if you're looking to get an instrument rating, that um, it's only 16 more Part 91 rules you need to know, basically, to, to do that add-on. Scott. <laughs> Very misleading. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, yes, they do call it, I, I it's the instrument they call the master degree, right? Yeah. Oscar? I said I almost got an instrument rating, but it's a lot of work. Yeah. So, yeah, that's I almost got my double I, and I'm like, eh, I don't need yeah. the double I. 
I found that I found other sources of income, so I just kind of gave up on it. But I mean, it was it was it was fun, but it was hard. If, yeah, if you're not gonna, if you don't have a trajectory where that is gonna impact your life, and you can see the benefit that you would use. Well, yeah, I plan. I, I don't know why you'd yeah, go through no, with it. Yeah, no, yeah, but you barely. Pilot. I plan on making a living flying, but then other opportunities came up, and that just that kind of went away. Immediately stopped. Yeah. Said, this is this is I, ridiculous. Yeah. I said, "Why well, I, I don't need to learn this stuff anymore." So, huh. I kind of wish I would have. I kind of wish I would have finished it just because, just just to have. But well, of course, yeah. But again, it just same, same as everything else. If you don't use it, you, it, you lose it. Right. I would have. I completely lost every. If I. If I had to start over again, it would be a nightmare because I would have to relearn everything. I went through it and got the rating and then never used it for years and years and years. And then recently, I'm like, oh, I'll just do, add the double eye on. And then it was basically just an elaborate instrument proficiency check because I had forgotten everything. And then I'm like, okay, well, I kind of get it now. And I don't really want to get the the double I, so then I left the the double I like you left the the whole instrument rating. You have to you have to have a you have to have a goal, a light at the end of the tunnel. The reason you're doing it, if it, yeah, you and you got you got to ha- you got to have a I think a very uh, a very justifiable reason. Oh, yeah. to spend that kind of money and that kind of time. Right. If I had a plane, Honestly, if I had a plane that was IFR certified, that would be my motivation. I've never owned an airplane that was IFR certified though. Right and right, Honestly, and, well, and me, a lot of people are in that. For me, anyway, flying under the hood is extremely boring. Oh yeah, and I, it's, just, I couldn't get into sweaty, it. Sweaty, your sweat, yeah, sweat yeah. gets in there. Just, All right, part C. You know, I don't know. Part well, C. Yeah, but, go ahead, Lee. I was just gonna say, you know, you got to think about some of the people who are they're listening to this. They have a private. They're looking at their instrument rating. We're talking about Class A airspace and how this all ties into the IFR only because Class A airspace is IFR only. They're talking about you know, or we are talking about uh, the instrument rating. It's kind of it's it does it does correlate well. If you are based at let's say a bigger airport to begin with, that was kind of the issue with you, Scott, is to go anywhere to shoot a really oh, good approach yeah. in ILS or whatever. We had to go oh, thirty miles to do that. Thirty miles and I minimum. And I would not go down the radios at all. Well, yeah, I would say you didn't use them at all. Everybody else no. did it for you. But anyways, <laughs> ask me. Ask me how I know. But <laughs> if if you were in a, let's say in a Cirrus that did 180 knots versus a Archer that did 100 knots, yeah. you know, 110, 120 knots on a good day, that's a big difference, and you have a big difference in capability now. I don't recall if we ever went into anything hard IMC where you didn't have the hood on. I don't mm-hmm. remember. I think I have like, I think I have like eight minutes total of IMC. Well, it that, is way, that it is, is way more enjoyable. Yeah, that is yeah. totally different. The element yeah. of realism, well, right, um, that's, well yeah, that's, is real. That's, that's fun, but but with the the hood, you know, and I'm I'm not trying to discourage anybody from doing it. You should definitely. If you, it if sounds like you flying, are, though, Scott. It sounds like you I'm are. Not, I'm not. You should definitely get it. Like I said, I regret not getting it. I just, I didn't follow through with it. It wasn't, 
it wasn't what I was into at the time. And like I said, I found other sources. It was evident you weren't into it. I remember those hours sitting there with you and you're just like, (laughs) What the hell am I doing here? I remember you caught me looking around once. You caught me looking yeah, at the ground. Yeah, you're like looking out the window. window. And you're looking like, out you the doing? side window. And I'm like, I'm like, uh, I'm looking at the ground. <laughs> you I remember I was, flying you with, go- I was flying with uh, Don once, and they, they, I was talking to ATC, and they gave me, uh, you know, they they gave me some instructions or whatever, and I replied with okay, and she just looked at me and was like. You can't say that to ADC. And I'm like, I was. I just told them. I just told them, okay. Like I heard what they said to do, so I know what to do. And just <laughs> grab the microphone from you. Well, in a lot of people are in this boat. A lot of people are in this boat. They're wondering, do is is it worth it to me to spend another six thousand dollars to get an instrument rating? Do you know? And there's a lot of things that come in. You guys both had the benefit of having your own airplane which obviously offset a lot of your training costs and allowed you to be ahead of the curve when it came time to take a particular check ride. And a lot of people have this same scenario and they're weighing what benefit am I going to get out of this uh, instrument rating uh, the class A airspace. Do I need a bigger airplane? Hey, my airplane is capable of going there already. Am I really going to use it? Those are all the things that people weigh all the time, especially when the cost of aircraft has come down as much as it can, as much as it has. They, you can get a lot more airplane for your money now than you could have, you know, 12, 12 years ago. You know, especially now there's a lot more Cirruses on the used market or other or Malibus, Malibu Matrix, all these airplanes that are attainable for people. They're high performance. They want to go long distances. They want to do this. So that the class A airspace is a very real topic for people now where it wasn't for us. Um, so the, the instrument rating, that's kind of the first hurdle in the class A airspace uh, argument. But but then we start talking about in, in making it um, realistic and uh, kind of pertinent information. Uh, with the uh, Class A airspace in the operating requirements and whatever, I think making that, um, um, I guess, uh, making people realize that, that it is realistic for them to, to maybe go there. I never thought it was for me. You guys probably didn't either. No. no. But now with the airplanes that are there, the equipment that's available, it is now maybe, I, I don't want to say it's a no-brainer, but it's twice as likely you're going to be in an airplane that's capable of going there than when we were all learning to fly. If you own an airplane that's capable of going that high, obviously in class A airspace, it's going to be instrument certified. Yeah. And if, like I said before, if I had, I've never owned an instrument certified airplane. Uh, Hopefully my next one is, and I'll probably get a lot better at instruments when I actually own it and I'm not renting it because I just never, I never feel motivated to learn the rental planes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you 100%. Um, part C charts class A airspace is not specifically charted uh, just because it's more of a a height above the ground thing and it's over the entire area so they don't chart it uh, like we will get into with B, C, etc. on the later episodes alright let's jump into this the FAR um, that, that was the entire aim section for for class A airspace so we're, we're already done there. with that no, not much no. there. Trying to keep this short, uh, sweet episode. Seventy-one point FAR seventy-one point three three. They referenced in that, which is Class A airspace areas. 
Uh, part A of 71.33 basically just rehashes what I read in the AIM. Uh, part B is where it starts to get more specific. I will read that. Uh, that airspace of the state of Alaska, including that airspace overlying the waters within 12 nautical miles of the coast from 18,000 feet MSL to and including flight level FL 600, but not including the airspace less than 1,500 feet above the surface of the earth and the Alaska Peninsula west of longitude 160 degrees west. So they put this nuance in here for Alaska because Alaska has mountains that go up into Class A airspace. What would be Class A airspace? What would be Class A airspace, but technically since the caveat of... um, It's the same as the lower 48, except for um, anywhere within 100 or 1,500 feet, it just automatically goes up. So tallest mountain in in Alaska and in North America is uh, Denali, formerly Mount McKinley. Uh, Before that, it was Denali, which is a whole nother conversation. Uh, But the peak of Denali is 20,310 feet at the summit. So if you fly Uh, over it, you're not in class A then? As long as you're within within how high above it you are. Class A. Class right at the peak of of Denali, since it's twenty thousand three hundred ten feet tall, uh, Class A airspace would begin at twenty one thousand eight hundred and ten feet, which is fifteen hundred feet higher than the summit. Um, and then Mount Saint Elias, I believe how you pronounce that, it just barely goes into it at eighteen thousand eight feet. Um, so then that's 1,500 feet above that. There's actually two mountains, Mount Foraker, I think it is, and Mount Bona. Could be butchering those names. Uh, but the um, yeah. those those don't go, those are both below 1,800 or 18,000. What? No, no, I'm leaving man. that one go. Yeah. I'm leaving that one go. Yeah, I was going to so, question your pronouncing of those, but we'll leave it go. Mount, Mount Bona, B-O-N-A. <laughs> Okay, you can Mount, take it up. Mount Forca and Mount Bona. <laughs> F Foraker. F O R K E R. Mount, Mount, Mount Forca and Mount Bona. Okay. I just wanted to <laughs> probably try to heard that right. I wasn't sure. Nobody yeah. else has heard of these mountains just like thank we you. haven't heard of these thank mountains. Thank you for so, thank you for clarifying that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You, I think I think I send send email corrections uh if you know <laughs> that those are mispronounced. Uh, so yeah, those, uh, aren't into the, they're, they're both just below, uh, 18,000, but with that 1500 rule, the airspace would kick up, um, going over those summits and then the West 160 degree, that's that Alaska peninsula. If you look at Alaska map at that big peninsula uh, on the South end that goes out, I think that's the Bering sea. Uh, it doesn't go all the way, it doesn't go all the way out there. I didn't. I didn't look up where the 160 degree west mark is, but wherever that is along the peninsula, Class A stops beyond that point. And um, Russia begins. <laughs> probably. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, 71.33C, uh, uh, the FAR. Uh, the airspace areas listed as offshore airspace areas in subpart A of FA order. Seven four zero zero decimal one one C, 
incorporated by reference C71.1 that are designated, this is riveting, I know, they're designated <laughs> in international airspace within areas of domestic radio navigational signal or ATC radar coverage and within which domestic ATC procedures are applied. All right. Um, I don't even see, know what any my, of that means. My favorite way to read 7400.11c, which is a, a 1,000... 549 page pdf is like by cozying up by a roaring fire and with like some hot cocoa but i've lived in florida for so long that i haven't done this in years so i'm not as familiar as i normally am i know scott you prefer to read this when you're on the beach yeah uh, oh, and, definitely. It, and it's winter up in, it's winter up yeah. in ohio so it's it's yeah, been several years. yeah so lee this is while. gonna have you. It's been since the summer since you you really delved into the. Yeah, I mean, I read it all in the summer, but I don't read in the winter time. It's a rich document, the the seven four zero zero decimal one one C subpart A from the FAA. Um, I will try if if you are interested in the show notes, robertberger dot com backslash double o seven, F A R A I M double o seven. If my email provider allows me to upload a document that large, I will put it in there. If not, you're going to have to search it out yourselves. Um, Lee, you, when was the last time you delved through that, that document? 7,400? Never. Um, it's 7400.11c. Yeah, 7,400. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't, I, I, I've never read that. Oh, it's riveting. Well, most of that stuff, whenever you talk about any of those things that are coded like that, 8,800, 8,900, 7,500, 7,400, those are all typically, basically, that is where the regs that we read through the far aim, what we are covering, that is where those are derived from. That is kind of the the raw texts, and then we just get kind of excerpts out of it to uh, to read and live by, if you will. So those are typically like the the FAA the FAA documents. Well, you're, you're thinking like the docket numbers. I don't think that's a docket number. That's this no, is an not, actual. No, I'm not talking docket numbers. Okay, that's you know that yeah, that's the all the government, the, all the FAA uh, forms, and I don't know how else to describe. It, but yeah, that's that's typically that is the FAA stuff. We get the watered down versions when we start looking at stuff that's pertinent to us. There's a ton of guidance in all those documents. Hence why it's 1500 something odd pages as long. Yeah, it's. No, I mean, I've, I've, I have read some of those types of documents, you know, from the FAA, you know, where a lot of the information comes from. And I mean, there's way more than what the regs are that we read at face value and apply in part 91 and 135, 121, all that stuff. I have it. It's, it's next in line on my, my Apple books app. Uh, next what time is? I'm in that that document it's 74 oh okay yeah i got it in there it's ready to go next time i'm in class a airspace you know sipping on my rum drink i'm gonna delve into that that's Um, good that's good that's good (laughs) sounds like a good time yeah it's riveting time all right far uh 91.121 which is referenced uh altimeter settings ah yeah Entering Class A airspace changes how we use uh, our altimeter settings. Um, so, Scott, if you can grab 91.121A. Okay. Uh, that basically explains before, like, 
basically explains what you're doing before you get into Class A airspace, what right. most people do. Each person operating an aircraft shall maintain the cruising altitude or flight level of that aircraft, as the case may be, by reference to an altimeter that is set when operating one below 18,000 feet MSL. I, the current reported altimeter setting of a station along the route and within 100 nautical miles of the aircraft, double I, if there is no station within the area prescribed in paragraph A1I of this section, the current reported altimeter setting of an appropriate available station, or triple I, in the case of an aircraft not equipped with a radio, the evaluation of the departure airport or an appropriate altimeter setting available before departure or two at or above 18,000 feet MSL 29.92 HG B the so, level we'll, we'll let Lee grab that stuff yeah what what does that mean though like how, how do you mess right. with your altimeter setting like you got your Coleman's window yeah. Okay. So in a in in most aircraft today, you have what's called an as- a sensitive altimeter, and so sensitive altimeter. So a long time ago, so like in uh, some J three Cubs, Taylor Crafts, um, pipe or uh, I'm sorry, Aranka Chiefs and Champs, um, they had you know a, a non sensitive altimeter, so you couldn't reset the Colesman window, it, which Rob just referenced. In basically all the airplanes now that most people are. 99.99% of people are flying now or exposed to now. They are a sensitive altimeter, which means when you're in flight, you are able to get a report from the ground, typically air traffic control, ATC, and they will tell you the current uh, altimeter setting on the ground. And so since you are free, since you are free floating in space, you're not tethered to the ground, you can be, you know, depending on atmospheric conditions, you have no uh, judge as to how, what your absolute uh, or true altitude is above the ground. So you get a report from the ground and you can reset what's called the Colesman window, which is an adjustment an adjustable uh, barometric pressure uh, um, setting. So the ground ATC air traffic control will say the current altimeter is a three zero zero eight. So what you can do, the standard pressure is two nine point nine two, which I'm sure most people have already heard um, when we're talking inches of mercury. So they will report to you three zero zero eight. You can then set that in your Colesman window. And so now the ground, since on the ground, they know they are a fixed altitude above sea level. So they can set the altimeter on the ground to the sea level uh, elevation, and that will yield them a uh, barometric pressure reading with with their true altitude in mind. You, since you are free floating in space, that is important to you, so you can maintain a true altitude above the ground. So they say it's three zero zero eight on the ground. You set three zero zero eight in the uh, Colesman window. You're both on the same page. So. Um, when you have a, uh, a pressure system run through, those uh, those those will be different. And so, as you traverse the country, you may go through multiple pressure systems. So you left, you know, the East Coast, and it's two nine eight nine, two nine point eight nine inches of mercury, and then you go to the West Coast, 
and it's 3002, that means you've raised, uh, my math sucks, but 130 feet. You're 130 feet off. That might not sound like a lot. The weather's crummy. You're going into San Diego and there's a fog bank rolling in um, or San Francisco, whatever, somewhere on the coast. You got fog rolling in and you're shooting uh, an approach down to minimums, 130 feet. That's almost twice as much as the uh, as the minimums on the approach. So that could be a big deal when you land. So you, you want the systematic updates as you go across the country, especially where, when you're getting closer to the ground, like on the approach and landing. Um, that's that's. I guess that's pretty much what I got on the Coles. Yeah. On a triple I says in the case of an aircraft, not equipped with a radio, the elevation of the departure airport or an airport altimeter setting available before departure. Um, I had, I always had a radio, but when I'm flying locally, I always just set it to the field elevation I was taking off from. And then, pretty much left it there, which it seems like the fine letter of the law says you got to have the altimeter setting off of an airport within the hundred nautical miles. Right. Yeah. If you're not going very um, far, it doesn't really matter. Just set it. I mean, every, most every, everyone does that before they take off. They just set it to whatever the airport elevation is, but if you're I mean, going into a controlled well, field, they always tell you the altimeter setting pretty much. Yeah. Nice. If I'm doing that, I just, whatever the tower told me, I always okay. punch it in there. But like uncontrolled fields around locally, uncontrolled fields, just set it to what you the altitude take off at, right? Yeah, but just looking at the fine letter of the law, looks like that's not what you're supposed to do. Yeah, but you'll be set within to an airport within 100 nautical miles, though. Yeah, do they count that as setting it? Well, yeah, like, I would. Just okay. so. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. So if what you're saying, I, if I'm if I'm taking kind of the the gray area that you're getting into, Rob, is you don't know what the altimeter setting is at your de- at your departure. You're setting field elevation, where they are referencing altimeter setting. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. They said the current reported altimeter setting of a station along the route and within 100 nautical miles of the aircraft. So I would go with probably one of the other subparts or subsections, rather. Yeah. All right, and then you were going to grab uh, the next part is B, which is lowest usable. F- flight levels because once basically scott just finished up with uh at or above eighteen thousand feet msl which we just learned is the bottom of the bottom floor of the class a airspace yep um you set it to 29.92 which is standard yep. and then everybody just goes off that using flight levels right yeah so i mean you have a lot of atmospheric uh variables happening so you gotta think so at sea level so at 18,000 feet, the reason 18,000 feet is such a kind of a, a milestone altitude and the reason it, there, this is all, there's a reason for all of this. 18,000 feet is exactly half of the atmosphere is below you. That sounds crazy. You're only at 18,000 feet. But if you think about it at sea level on a standard day, you have 14.7 pounds per square inch of pressure. Mm -hmm. Okay. At 18,000 feet, you have 7.4. So exactly half, I mean, not exactly half, but half. So at 18,000 feet, half of the Earth's atmosphere is already below you. I did not know that. Well, that's why why I'm here, guys. That's why I'm here. 
Well, what's even crazier is if you go below sea level, it's only 33 feet down, you double your atmosphere. Well, fun fact. I did not know that. So if you're out in the, if you're out in the air and you're in Louisiana, you dig a 33 feet deep hole. No, no, no. This is in water. Okay. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. We're talking about air. Okay. Anyways, going on 18,000 feet at 18,000 feet or 7.4. So that is when we have basically, yeah, there's caveats because, you know, you have some mountains and some mountain ranges that will uh, penetrate that, that 18,000 foot level. But barring that, if half the atmosphere is already, what's that? If there's, I said, bottom line is just stay away from those. If there's an obstacle that sticks up that high, you just don't want to be anywhere near it. Right. right. Give it a good thousand nautical mile. Yeah. Yeah. Wide berth there. At At least. least At least. A thousand nautical mile away from it. (laughs) Scott's rule of thumb. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Basically, Um, if you're not flying over cornfields, you probably really shouldn't even be flying. I mean, bean fields are good too. Wheat fields are fine, but well, wheat if it's, wheat fields. If you don't have like, if you're not surrounded by flat farmers' fields, you probably really shouldn't even be there. So just take a look out the window. Yeah. You see mountains. Best to just put it down. Put it down quickly as possible. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. maybe yeah. not even take off at all. Yeah, like well, just, if you see him, if you see him from the airport, I wouldn't even clearly. recommend. I wouldn't recommend leaving the state of Ohio, honestly. Because you don't know what's out there. <laughs> well, Florida, Florida's pretty flat. Uh, yeah, but you, yeah, you fly, you fly commercial down here and then Florida's, fly again. You know? Florida's flat, but the problem is with Florida is there's too many, there's too much air traffic control going on down there. That's you, true. You know, That's, oh. you if you look at a sectional, you want to stay out. Find the circles on a sectional. They're you know they're different colors. Like there's blue ones. Blue ones are really bad. You stay out of those. <laughs> and we will cover that in the next episode. <laughs> magenta, magenta colored ones; those mean you should probably stay out of here. But just just stay out of the circles. And there's way too many circles in Florida, so that's why I yes. say, you know, I just I really wouldn't recommend leaving Ohio too much. Okay, right, Lee. This part B of the altimeter is back to ninety, back to ninety one point one two one. The altimeter settings. Part B. I honestly, I want you just to explain this. I don't get what they're talking about. So yeah, I'm I'm trying to get at it. So the, the they want to start the flight levels nineteen or eighteen thousand feet is because exactly half is below you, and so what they want to do is they and so there's so many atmospheric variables that can take place between temperature and pressure differences below that level that they want to basically uh, zero it all out at flight level one eight zero eighteen thousand feet. They want to zero it out. And once you reach there, everybody reset 2992. And, and when you get there, that is what kind of, and, and those are our flight levels. So everybody resets to the sea level standard of 29.92. And so now everybody, since most of those variables are going to be pretty well isolated and removed from the equation, we can now all resume. And, and where this becomes pertinent is. You know, aircraft can be going opposite directions at 400 and whatever, 500 knots, opposite directions, only a thousand feet away from each other. 
So we reset the altimeter to 992, and so that now gives us all a new threshold. You don't want to have all these atmospheric variables in the equation, and then everybody setting their altimeter to the field elevation on the ground that is 20,000 feet below you. There's too many variables. We need to we need to reset 2992 to 18,000 feet so we can maintain this really tight tolerance when we have big airplanes going really fast and keep the safety margin. That's what we want. In part B, if I remember correctly, we're talking about the lowest usable flight uh, flight levels and how the atmospheric pressure uh, equates. And so one thing, and just to keep me kind of somewhat sharp, am I correct, Rob? Sounds good. Okay. If if is what I do to kind of keep myself fresh is, and it took me a long, obviously it took me a long time to get to this point, but when you get a new altimeter setting, so when you go from different air traffic control facility, so in the operation that I'm normally in, I'm always talking to ATC. So I'm always, I'm constantly getting a new altimeter setting. They're telling me what it is on the ground and I'm resetting. When I see that, I'm counting, I'm saying what it is. So if I go from 3009 to 3007, I will say 20 feet. That's what I'll say. I seriously say that. And because because most of the time when it becomes important is when you're coming down to do an approach. If it's a 200 foot above ground level approach, 20 feet could be a big difference. When, whether you see those lights and you can continue the approach and land or you have to go miss because the weather's too crappy. So 20 feet matters. So when they give me a new one, I will just say it out. And and that keeps me fresh. So what you want to remember is for every one hundredth of an inch. So these are inches of mercury. Two nine. So it's twenty nine point nine two inches of mercury. So the amount of atmospheric pressure. So when they did this way back in the day, like probably, I don't know, eighteen hundreds. They had basically an open. No, I'm serious. I'm serious. I'm about to tell you where the inches of mercury comes oh, okay. from. So don't be a smart ass. So this, is, this isn't pre Wright brothers, all right? Yeah, pre Wright yeah, brothers. Exactly. It, I mean, it, 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 yeah. or maybe they did. I don't know who did it. I don't care. Anyways, don't. They, had, they have an open vessel and they allowed the uh, atmospheric pressure to weigh on that. And what that pressure would do is that would force, they had a graduated cylinder. And so the atmospheric pressure would let, weigh down on it, then force the pressure up this graduated cylinder. And that would, uh, and, and right now, a lot of people um, uh, in the um, HVAC, uh, furnace and air people, um, they do a lot of stuff in uh, correlates to inches of water column is, is what a lot of them use. Now, obviously, in aviation says it's kind of an older an older thing. We're using inches of mercury. I don't know why, it's, why we use different um, elements. But anyways, forces down, which for the amount of pressure of atmosphere weighing down it would weigh it up a graduated cylinder. And it, the standard was 29.92 inches of pressure at, at sea level on a standard day. So um, every 10th, or I'm sorry, every 100th of an inch is 10 feet. So every time we get a new altimeter setting, normally it's not huge changes normally because you're, you're constantly getting a new, a new reading all the time and they'll tell you what it is. You'll reset it. So you will get 20 feet, 20 feet, 20 feet. And as you've gone a thousand miles, it will equate obviously to the total difference from where you left to where you landed, but it's incremental changes. But you know, if you were in an airplane that, you know, was uh, maybe you just didn't, you're, you're going VFR. A thousand miles, you set it when you left, and you don't set it, reset it again until you land. You may have 
500 foot difference. Might. Yeah. I have seen that. Yeah. When I didn't mess with it and did a cross country. Yep, exactly. Yeah, and, that, and that's very, very easily, to, uh, you know, um, that's very easy to have happen. So every one hundredth of an inch is 10 feet. Every tenth of an inch is 100 feet. So when you look at the lowest usable flight out, uh, flight um, flight level at, on a 2992 day, that's uh, 18,000 feet. When you go from, you know, 2992 to 2942, um, that's, that's, that is a 50 or a five tenths of an inch difference. So if it's five tenths, five times 100 is 500 feet. So the lowest usable flight level on that day would be 18,500. This is something that ATC handles. It is not a, this is not something to even commit to memory. It's way over the top that I even understand what we're talking about myself, but um, it's ATC handles it. You won't get assigned that altitude uh, on that day. You, they it's will not good, mean. They will not tell you. Good to, maintain, to know. Yeah, they will but, not tell you to maintain eighteen thousand feet when the you surface. Might uh, for, you, you might need to know for a test, right? Maybe or no. I I don't I don't think so. No. And everybody, every I will guess what I would tell a private pilot looking to do, you know, they're about to go buy a Malibu or this is about to become pertinent to them. I would just say, remember when you're doing, if you remember the small stuff, you'll remember the big stuff, if that makes any sense in this case. So if you remember that every one hundredth of an inch equals 10 feet, you remember every tenth of an inch equals 100 feet. So if you look at the pure numbers in this like regulation, which I don't even have pulled up, um, two nine. Let's say a standard is two nine nine two. Um, the next threshold is two nine four two. That's five. That's clearly five hundred feet. Nine minus four is five. Five times one hundred is five hundred. So that the lowest usable flight level on that day would be five hundred. So on, so forth. Just and this is up. Yeah, and this is something ATC handles. So it doesn't even matter to us that's as just pilots. A weight, just a weight off my shoulders. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, and it's not gonna—it's not gonna matter because they're—they're acting like this is back in the day where you're flying a, a constellation, and I, I have no idea where this would be pertinent. I, I really, I really don't. When I'm sitting show. in the back, when I'm sitting in the back with my rum drink, I'm—I'm I'm happy that the pilots up front don't have to be dealing with any of this. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, how could you? How could you get any sleep? How could you get any sleep <laughs> if you knew they had to? Yeah, deal with I'd be—I'd be worried about them. Oh, seriously. All right. FAR 91.135. This is, I mean, this is entire section. We went in, I forget which episode Scott referenced the aim as the book of suggestions. So just in case, just for the people, just for the people who believe that the aim is, is just a book of suggestions. They do put operations in class A airspace into FAR 91.135, which we'll get into. Um, Except as provided in paragraph D of this section, each person operating aircraft in class A airspace must conduct that operation under instrument flight rules again uh, stressing the point you've got to be ifr and in compliance with the following a clearance operations may be conducted only under an atc clearance received prior to entering the airspace uh, how does that clearance work lee so i mean you have to treat it uh, class A airspace similar to any of the other positive controlled airspace. A lot of private pilots 
are used to flying in class G and class E airspaces, whether they know it at, at whoever we're talking to, whether they know it at their level or not, or however thorough their instructor was or was not. Um, most of them are flying in either you go out to your practice area to go do steep turns or turns across a road or turns around a point, stalls, slow flight. That's all going to be conducted in class E or class G airspace. And so, though, and, and, and you may know, they may know that class E is considered c- controlled airspace, but that's only when the weather is bad. Other than that, if the weather's good, class E airspace is basically a free for all, just like class G. So, yes, final order of the law. It's class E, but we know if the weather's good, like most private pilots are flying, it's a free-for-all. It, we treat it basically just like class G. Yeah, the cloud clearance visibility requirements are different. That's a story for another day. But other than that, they're basically the same. Um, class A functions really like a positive controlled airspace, just like your class B and your class C and your class D airspaces. So if you're going to operate in, in uh, class A, you're going to need clearance to go in there. Mini, you're going to have to. Uh, and when you're on an IFR flight plan, it's obviously since I, it's IFR only in Class A. It's you know inferred or understood that 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 you're cleared in there. They wouldn't if, if the ATC cannot knowingly. And this might be new to, to some people. ATC cannot knowingly clear you to an altitude or a heading or a waypoint anything in a way that can violate you if they clear you to it you are not in violation of it so if they clear you to flight level one nine or zero you're not going to be in trouble i mean you could be in trouble for other reasons if you don't have an airplane equipped there and you go there and you're not certified you're not ifr things like that but let's assume you're ifr certified the airplane's capable of going there you meet all the equipment requirements they clear you to flight level one nine or zero you're good to go so i think the point you're asking, you need clearance to go there. That basically needs, means you need to be, for all intents and purposes, in my opinion, unless you guys can come up with something different, you need to be on an IFR flight plan. That's pretty much how I take that one. No, it's, they said pr- received prior to entering the airspace. So that's, you can yeah, you can get an IFR clearance on the fly. Um, so if you, if you yeah. were in that situation. Yeah, so I said uh, IFR would, flight plan, didn't I? Yeah. yeah, I'm just saying that prior to entering wording, um, there would they put that in there probably for that situation? Was uh, run, I guess run that situation by me again? Then the ATC clearance uh, received prior to entering the airspace. Yeah, you're um, on an IFR flight plan, so that'd be yeah. yeah. So in most cases, when you're IFR, you're starting on the ground. Um, you technically could file in flight, like at sixteen thousand, but that 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 rarely happens. I would say. Yeah, usually if someone you're doing something like that, you're going to file on usually, the ground. But. Usually people don't go back and forth, even though you can legally do that. Well, yeah, but you could. Um, I, I guess I, I don't know where it might be more pertinent, but it, what I have done before is if you can't get a hold of uh, ATC on the ground to get a clearance, and it's an uncontrolled airport or something like that, take off VFR. So you get higher, and you can reach ATC once you're in the air. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's still you're not gonna. I guess, I guess that's where. I guess that that that's pretty deep into it. I hadn't really thought about this, but yeah, you 
it's it's an understood, which I guess for entry level pilots, you can't go above eighteen thousand feet unless you're on an IFR flight plan. I guess yes. that's what I was trying to say. Maybe I said it, I'm not sure, but that that's that's what I was meaning to say. Eighteen thousand is no different. You don't treat that eighteen thousand foot threshold any differently than you treat going into class B airspace. Unless yes. you're talking to the to the um, air traffic control facility with authority over that airspace, you don't go there. So it's just more of a vertical instead of lateral in the way we're typically thinking about it. You could legally, if you have an airplane capable of going above class A airspace, above flight level 600, which is basically 60,000 feet, you could go off of your IFR flight plan above it. And you, in theory, you'd have to re re go under IFR to get back down, wouldn't you? Yeah, that is not, not that not that anyone does this, but in our lifetime we might see it though. I mean, there's the space force now. They'll come get you. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I'm just no, I'm just joking. But I mean, yeah, who I who knows what how that all works. There is probably buried somewhere in some archive other regulations what you get once you get above flight level six zero zero. But who goes there? Military. That's about it. I don't think any civilian. That's, that's really no. High I mean, the highest civilian thing I can think of is like probably some um, the Gulfstream or the uh, Global Express that go like fifty-one. I don't know how high those even go anymore. I know the Globals can go pretty high. Well, yeah, I know, but I, the airplane I fly can go to fifty-one. Oh, yeah, there I might be. I, I mean, the Globals might go higher than that, but. All right, part B of 91.135, communications, uh, which is unless otherwise authorized by ATC, each aircraft operating Class A airspace must be equipped with a two-way radio capable of communicating with ATC on a frequency assigned by ATC. Each pilot must maintain two-way radio communications with ATC while operating in Class A airspace. Um, When you're cruising along at those speeds up that high, who are you talking to on the radio? It's not like your local control towers at the airports. No, it's typically in in all these different um, air traffic control facilities have different letters of authorization, and they start it at different ranges and and uh, different distances. They may have different altitude and authorities. Uh, it depends on where the local air traffic control has um, communications to. So. It's it's I mean it's a huge thing, but yeah, normally you're talking to a center controller is who you're talking to. So there's uh, only really a few of them across the whole country. Um, they cover huge ranges, um, and they have you know antennas on the ground, you know, spanning hundreds. Uh, I mean, I guess I wouldn't say thousands. I don't, I can't think of any that might be thousands, but um, hundreds of miles. And, and they'll talk to you up up there into the up into the flight levels, upper flight levels. Um, and then when so you, you go to when you go to the next center, they hand you off to the next center, then give you the frequency and say yep. good day. And right. yeah, 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 you know, um, you know, if you're talking to Chicago Center, you know, if you're kind of going to to the west or the northwest, uh, you know, they're going to say, you know, contact Minneapolis Center, and they'll tell you the frequency. You just repeat it back to them, so you got it, and you're good. And then okay. they will just continue that handoff until you've uh, basically reached your destination. 
So yeah, I mean, cross country. Yeah, he'll talk to. You. So like, let's say that, I mean, this might be a good example, and this might be eye opening for somebody. But um, if you're no, you're going from uh, New York and you're going to L.A., you're gonna talk to. Hold on. You're only gonna talk to five different centers. Now each center may have three or four controllers working a sector within that center, if that makes any sense. Yeah, so like Minneapolis Center. To the next one, right? They tell you yeah, when to the head. next yeah. sector. So you may talk to four different controllers that work at Minneapolis Center, and then the final one will, you know, hand you off to Denver Center. Center. Yeah. Yeah, and then you may talk to four different Denver centers until you're talking to you know LA Center or whoever the next one is, which I don't know offhand. But it's huge, huge areas though is kind of the bottom line, which is a little bit different compared to a lot of people flying down, you know, primarily in Class uh, E and G airspaces, you know, staying below the flight levels, you know, and you still if you're going you know hardcore cross country, you're still going to talk to some center controllers. You know, but, um, it, well, I mean, you'll talk to center controllers a lot, but um, and a lot of times those centers will have different controllers for the different altitudes like that. Different sectors. Yeah. Different, different sectors. sectors yep, yeah. yep. Yep. And the sectors can be laterally and vertically. That, that's a really good point. You can have different sectors you may have. So like, let's say you're traversing an area and, and you enter, you enter, uh, Indianapolis centers aerospace, you enter, you're talking to one guy. Uh, you keep going laterally, same altitude for, you know, whatever, 50 miles, 100 miles. I don't even know how it, what it would be, 200 miles. And the, he transfers you to the next center controller, you know. So you're on Indianapolis Center. He'll say, you know, so-and-so, contact Indianapolis Center, this frequency, you know, whatever. So you do contact the next guy, but then you're like, oh, I'm starting to pick up ice and I want to climb up another 2,000 feet. And then you do that. You might be talking back to the same guy you were originally talking to again because of the way the airspace the way that it's broken down by sector so they may have altitude or altitude confines and also like lateral distance confines if that makes sense to anybody yeah what so how many different what's the most divvied up um sector do you know i don't know what it is i mean it's i mean there's there's a lot um, assuming it'd be like New York area, Chicago area, or Southern California area would be my guess, but maybe not. I don't, I don't think, you know, of course. Yeah. I, I don't, I can't, I guess I can't tell you the, the uh, difference. It seems, you know, there's a, there's a lot, you know, they're, um, you know, cause coming into some, in my experience, you know, in coming into some, you know, you're on the descent, you know, so you're, you're kind of vertically traversing more where if you get up, you know, to 40 something odd thousand feet and you just stay there for hours on end, you're talking to fewer people because there is less workload for the control. So if you look at it at a air traffic controller workload standpoint, the higher you go, the fewer sectors you will encounter, which in the aircraft I'm currently flying, that is, that, that is typical. I mean, you'll go, um, so let's say, um, yeah, I mean, we talked to four different centers, maybe only 10, 10 different, 10, 10, con- 10 different controllers on my last flight, probably going a okay. thousand, 1100 miles. 
Now, if you're used to flying a 172 at 8,000 feet, going a thousand, 1,100 miles, that's a totally different experience than what you're used to. Yeah, that would be way different. Yeah. So it, it's kind of mind blowing, but you, you have to think about it from a controller workload standpoint, how it's all broken down. The less airplanes there are, the less controllers there will be as well. So they don't divide those up by area necessarily. They divide those up by workload. I would say both. I, I mean, primarily, I would still say it's by area and then reduced by workload. So if you're in, if you're talking from the you know 50,000 50, foot altitude down to 40,000 feet, you're going to have much less there than you will in the 40 to 30. Because you got to think from 40,000 feet to 30,000 feet, that's where a huge portion of your commercial air traffic is. You know, that's where all the airliners are. That that is that is the sweet spot for you know commercial aviation is forty to forty to thirty. You know, uh, in in the years that I flew, you know, air, the for the airlines, I went to forty thousand feet one time. I go there every trip I'm on now. In the corporate side, I'm going over forty thousand feet. Private jets, corporate jets, typically go higher than airliners. I guess, I mean, I wouldn't say typically, but yeah, I mean, yeah. It, I mean, it, it seems to me the aircraft certification standards um, seem to allow them to do that. Yeah. It, You're not the first person I've heard that from. All the corporate guys I talk to say the same thing. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in my last job flying a similar airplane to what I'm flying now, I mean, if you were going over an hour, you're going to 45,000 feet. Jeez. If you were flying more than an hour of flight total time, you're going to 45. Just it's cheaper up. fuel, less interruption from other we, aircraft. You got to think the optimal profile for a turbojet airplane is a parabola. You're going to climb, 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 and climb until it's time to start coming down. And that's a huge thing. You know, when you start talking about high altitude in, I, I mean, yeah, there's a high altitude endorsement, but there is, the stuff you're going to learn there is a lot less important than the stuff you're going to learn um, kind of in the on-the-job training as far as doing your descent planning, your three-to-one rules. You know, for every three, uh, one, 1,000 feet you need to lose, you need to, it, it, it's, it's, that's my, it's mileage. You got to, you know, so take your altitude to lose times three, and that becomes the mileage it's going to take you to do it. Okay. Let's get into part. F- yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that's that's the, that's the bigger thing when you start talking about going going this high. I mean, not even that high. If you're going up to twenty thousand feet, you know you can't drop like a rock. You can get up there, and it'll take you some time. But that's a lot more controlled and a lot more um, uh, reasonable descent planning. That's where your fuel savings are. That's where um, you know your, your kind of your your total in route time is is in your descent planning. So. Um, that, that's, that's what I would say. That's, that's, that's what, yeah. Yeah. It's I mean, more of a I, gentleman's airspace. If I'm going over it, an hour, I'll probably climb all the way up to 3,500 feet or so. That's you pretty, know. pretty crazy. Yeah. All right. Part C equipment requirements, unless otherwise authorized by ATC, no person may operate an aircraft within class a airspace, unless that aircraft is equipped with the applicable equipment specified in 91.2. 
2.15. And after January 1st, 2020, 91.225. That is the transponder stuff, isn't it, Scott? Yeah, that's uh, ADS-B out that you're required to have after January 1st in controlled airspace. Uh, Then you just put that on your plane, right? Yes, I did. Uh, It's rather expensive. Uh, You have to at least you have to have the minimum of ADS-B out. Uh, you don't have to have in, um, but it's it's about it's about eighteen hundred and fifty bucks for the cheapest one that is on the market right now. Um, and then that's all airplanes, other than ones that for some reason only fly in Class G airspace. Basically, yeah. have to have that, correct? Yeah. Uh, if you if your aircraft was originally certified um, without what's the what's the word here i'm looking for um electric yeah I'm, uh, uh lee electrical system. that's what i was looking for engine driven electrical system then you're you can uh skirt around that a little bit but if you're in uh class b or c or a airspace you're required to have it as of january 1st this year 2020 so I mean the way I read it, and I mean this is like super um like oh my god, we need another new thing, but anything that used to be applicable to mode C transponders, it's basically they've taken ADSB and they've said all the rules that applied to mode C, you now need to have ADSB out. Like yeah. there's a lot of stuff. If you didn't if you didn't used to need mode C, which most people had it, obviously. But if if you used to need mode C to fly there, you now need. In case anybody didn't know, mode C is is altitude reporting, right? Is that what that is? Yeah. So you have your transponder, and that is basically just telling ATC your Your where you are point in space. Mode C also gives the altitude, right? Yeah. So now they can look at you on a screen and pinpoint you three dimensionally. So now they knew where you were laterally, but now they know where you are vertically. So when they see two aircraft on converging courses, for example, and they're talking to both of them. So you're both like IFR. uh, Yeah, IFR, I guess, would be the only case where this would be uh, applicable as far as I know. You're both IFR. You're both talking ATC. You're under ATC's jurisdiction. They used to only see, hey, this is this airplane and this is that airplane. That's it. They saw you laterally about to have a collision, let's say. Now with the, you know, well, not now, but back when they started mode C, um, they can now see your altitudes. They could pinpoint you three-dimensionally in space. So they could see, hey, they're on a collision course, but oh, wait, this guy's at 5,000 feet. This dude's at 12,000 feet. Clearly, there's no conflict. So they could see that they're on converging courses, but they're separated by 7,000 feet of altitude there's obviously not going to be a conflict. They're not going to hit each other. That's what mode C did. Now we have ADSB, which basically supersedes, uh, or not, I shouldn't say supersedes, but kind of goes along with all of what used to be mode C transponder requirements. That's mo- uh, transponder with altitude reporting capability. Now we have ADSB satellite based, more reliable, uh, more precise, what makes it better other than it's more reliable and precise is it 
it's basically the same thing. Okay, so hold on. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess it's the same thing, but you know, like from from us as pilots, you know, I can be sitting on my iPad in the plane and I can hear a company aircraft check on. I can go find them on the map. And in yeah. ADSB, ADSB out does that. I can see how fast they're going. I can see what altitude they are. I can see their call sign. I can see their end number. I can see everything. It it basically gives the other airplanes around you that have ADSB in the capability to see what controllers previously could only see with mode C. No, even ATC. Uh, you know that's probably. I guess that. I guess that's a fair. That's a fair. St- statement um but i guess i guess obviously the government didn't do it for us as pilots they did it for atc you know the the mandate is is for the benefit to atc so there must be some benefit in precision in the way they can handle a higher number of of aircraft okay I, i would assume right there has to be an advantage to them I don't know what that is. I'm not an air traffic controller. We can get an air traffic controller on here one day, I'll bet. Um, but as far as me, I, I don't know what the uh, other than, I mean, like we said, we said precision and uh, reliability. Um, you know, so I think those are the, <laughs> those would be good enough reasons for me. I think they didn't do it for us to see each other. I do like that. I've flown some stuff that has ADSB in with G1000s, and on the map, it's just like you see everything around you. Yeah, which is pretty pretty nice. Oh, it's, yeah. I mean, it's huge. And and I guess another thing is is they they don't need to necessarily be talking to air traffic control in order for you to see each other. You could have two VFR uh, uh, VFR targets, neither one of you talking to ATC, but you can see what you're doing in relationship to each other. So yeah. you would have never seen that before. So in a condense, yep. like Scott talked about earlier, you talk about a very congested airspace uh, system like Florida. Uh, you know, you're going to have a lot of targets in a very compact area. And now with ADSB, everybody can be a lot more in the loop and see each other. And so the see and avoid concept, the safety factor is compared to, you know, before the ADSB mandate is off the chart. It's another the- another thing to consider, though. Um, I don't fly enough to like get it as annoyed, but I've seen people just in South Florida get so annoyed they just turn it off because they're constantly getting everything. So then it's just completely worthless yeah. again. It's like not even having it. A lot of people up here just haven't even installed it. I mean, you I know. I mean, you wouldn't need it. You didn't need to install it. No, I didn't need to, but. I mean, there's a lot of places you can't go without it. That's true, and that that's oh. true. And but you have to think there's a lot of people who probably wouldn't go there anyways. Yeah, well, there's about there's about 25 aircraft on the on the field that I'm at right now, and I think I'm the only one that has it. <laughs> so. so a lot of people just aren't complying with it. Well, yeah, but you if you're gonna go flying class G and class E airspace, you don't need to have it. No. That's true. Which the is mandate most, does not apply. The airspace where we're at, so I guess it doesn't yeah. really matter. But in the typical private pilot, you know what I what I want people to take away from perhaps this episode is that the aspirations of Class A airspace is really not it's not un, unobtainable. It is very realistic. 
there's a lot of advantages to going there or going yep. higher, I guess I should say. Uh, and I guess I didn't get to fully talk about all of that, but um, clear, class A airspace, I mean, there are some significant advantages. But to go there, back to the ADSB, you're going to need to have it to go there. So if you think you're skirting the rules now and you, you know, you're, you're serious or whatever that can, that can maybe go there, you're going to have to have that. Oh, yeah. Uh, we'll do part D, ATC authorizations. Uh, an operator may deviate from any provision of this section under the provisions of an ATC authorization issued by the ATC facility having jurisdiction of the airspace concerned. Uh, in the case of an inoperative transponder, ATC may immediately approve an operation within a Class A airspace area allowing flight to continue if desired to the airport of ultimate destination, including any intermediate stops or to proceed to a place where suitable repairs can be made or both. Requests for deviation uh, from any provision of this section must be submitted in writing at least four days before the proposed operation. ATC may authorize a deviation on a continuing basis or for an individual flight. So this just gives them the the Hail Mary that if they approve it, they're the they're God, basically. <laughs> Always are, yeah. So it, it, basically everything we've done this entire episode, if you get the ATC to say, hey, no, that's not a problem. We'll let you do it. Then you can do whatever they said you can do. Yeah, that's and and that's that's since uh mode C came out. There've all yeah. there's always been this this over this overtone that if yeah you don't have mode C, but if ATC said if you give them prior if they give you prior permission, good to go. So the same yeah. thing still applies with with ADSB as well yep and uh that's all i got you guys got anything else no that's uh, for uh, class a airspace uh i mean we didn't get into o- uh, oxygen requirements did we by chance um yeah i had that i mean we're going a little long we can make another episode about that um within this year uh, i was thinking keep uh the episode shorter yeah, yeah. Other, than, other than that yeah i think we're good all right. Th- um, show notes, robertberger.com, B-E-R-G-E-R, the German spelling, not the sandwich spelling, um, backslash F-A-R-A-I-M-007 for this one. Um, best way to get in contact with this is email. Uh, I am F-A-R-A-I-M at robertberger.com. Uh, Lee is F-A-R-A-I-M at leegriffing.com. That's where all the technical questions go to. And Scott is F-A-R-A-I-M at scottboris.com. And uh, I think we'll wrap this one up. You guys are ready. Oh, yeah. And uh, All right. We will see you on the next one.